Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. This week, we've got big news in the world of logistics and infrastructure with the largest railroad merger in history, coming at the same time as one of the largest global shipping channels is facing a blockage that some experts could think uh, think could extend for weeks. Joining me to break down both of these stories is Motley Fool contributor Lou Whiteman. Lou, thank you for joining me on the podcast, as always. Always a pleasure to be here, Nick. Yeah, spring break is right around the corner. Any big plans? I know it's big reopening season, Lou. We are doing the COVID thing. We have got a house in the mountains that we're just going to go hide there instead of hiding our house at home. But uh, looking forward to it. Awesome. Same thing. We're, we're going to Ocracoke Island, you know, going to the island. You can only reach by ferry. So, so trying to uh, trying to get off the grid a little bit. I, I hope folks, you know, to the extent they can do it safely or, or you know, getting out of the house. I know I'm ready to, to get out of my apartment uh, to the extent I can. We've got a, lot, a couple big stories today, like I teased um, off in the intro. I want to start with this merger uh, announced on Sunday between Kansas City Southern Railroad and the Canadian Pacific Railway. As I said in the intro, this is the largest combination of two railroads ever. But I think some another aspect that, that folks may not realize is, is railroad mergers have been banned for a while or were banned uh, uh, leading up leading up to uh, uh, the past several years. Yeah, no, historically, railroads have been really bad at merging, so bad that their regulator, the Surface Transportation Board, stepped in in the late 90s. Uh, If you go back in time then, in the late 90s, there were two deals going on, one on each coast, and neither of them went well. Uh, Union Pacific was trying to integrate Southern Pacific, and then Conrail, which was created by the government out of all the railroad bankruptcies in the 70s, was being split by uh, Norfolk Southern and CSX. And the net-net was... None of them did a good job. Uh, Stuff was sitting. uh, Produce was rotting. Uh, You had huge shipping customers like UPS demanding the government take action. Uh, The end result was a moratorium on deals that has lasted until uh, about a week and a half ago and uh, will probably last another year because this is going to take a while to work through. Right, which brings us into the the, the terms of these merger. What's 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 going into this deal, and it's kind of an interesting structure, but to account for some of this these regulatory uh, potential headwinds. Yeah, yeah. So this is it's a twenty nine billion dollar deal by enterprise value. That's the largest railroad railroad deal, as you say. Uh, it's slightly smaller than what Berkshire Hathaway paid for uh, Burlington Northern, but that wasn't a, a consolidation. Uh, right now in the North America, there are seven what we call Class One railroads. Uh, these are the two smallest of the seven. Uh, even combined, they are going to be smaller than number five, Norfolk Southern. But this is going to be a massive railroad. We're talking uh, 20,000 miles of combined rail, uh, employing about that many people, 20,000 people. A uh, total revenue of $8.7 billion if you combine it uh, in 2020. And uh, interestingly, as you say, because there is so much risk here, they are saying they don't expect this deal to close until mid-2022 at the earliest, which that's a long time to wait. For that reason they've structured it as a trust, there's actually, if all goes to plan, assuming Kansas City Southern shareholders approve the deal, which I think they will, they could get paid as early as this summer. And then the asset would sit kind of in a trust for a year or so while the regulators work things out. But uh, that's good news for Kansas City Southern shareholders, because otherwise you're sitting on your hand hoping for the best for about a year and a half. As it stands, and I think it will be signed off by the regulator, uh, you should have your, uh, it's, I, I believe it's uh, 
0.489 shares of Canadian Pacific and ninety dollars in cash as soon as late summer. Absolutely, and so and then the 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 actual asset of Kansas City Southern will sit in this trust until it's approved by regulators. And so, what are the arguments uh, that these companies are going to make to regulators for for why this is good for the industry and why they should allow this to take place? Well, the big one is, like I said, the revenues. These are two small companies. There's also, relative to their competitors, there's also no overlap. They two actually partner right now. They share a facility in Kansas City. But if you think of the maps, you basically have two puzzle pieces that you put together, you get North America. Kansas City Southern right now gets about half of its revenue from Mexico, half from the United States, but they don't have any tracks north of Chicago and only just up the spine. Uh, Canadian Pacific, meanwhile, has a huge Trans-Canada operation and then uh, some some track into uh, especially the U.S. Northeast and the Midwest. Uh, you put them together and you have a more complete puzzle that you can kind of uh, you can kind of work on, and uh, this matters as partners. They can combine and they can you can run a shipment right now with these partners going from Mexico to Toronto, but you're talking about a delay in a yard in Kansas City where they uh, switch up equipment. So you are the difference between that and a straight line where you really can compete with some of these others that are already offering this. There is a real benefit for uh, for shippers. Uh, Post-deal, we're talking about a company that's about 50% of its revenue is from Canada, uh, but 30% from the U.S., the rest in Mexico. This is the first truly North American railroad. Yeah, so when you read the press releases from this company, one of the big catalysts they talk about is this USMCA, this new NAFTA, the idea that they can link Mexico, Canada, and the United States uh, through that that channel uh, in Kansas City um, where they interchange. One of the areas that that I think about is kind of an obvious uh, beneficiary of this this deal is right at the start of the Biden administration. We had the Dakota Access Pipeline shut down. That was going to take oil uh, from Canada uh, down to the Gulf Coast the United States south um, into the United States. That's since been um, that that project has since been canceled. But there is still demand to, to bring that product to market. And if you look at the routes that, that this um, that this uh, railroad will service, can plug right into that network and 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 connect the Gulf Coast uh, uh, with Canada. So is that is that a, a you see as kind of a, a justification for this deal? Like th- those sorts of routes connecting uh, um, those those markets. Absolutely. And the, you know, the oil route is a neat one because uh, Canadian National already has that track from buying Illinois Central way long time ago. So they can go right down the Mississippi. This is another option, which is pro shippers. Also, let's be honest, we are not building any more railroad tracks. We have to make better use of the railroad tracks we have. This merger on paper should alleviate some of the pain and some of the biggest chokeholds in the North American system. Chicago, for example. Right now, Chicago is where trains go to die or just to go to sleep for a long time. Uh, this will offer a direct line from the Gulf of Mexico into Canada for uh, ag and uh, oil that goes through Iowa and Minneapolis, which is a big deal. It also, because of the uh, extensive port operations Kansas City Southern has down in Mexico, that is a deep water port. Uh, right now, you can go in there and bypass really, really heavily congested ports in Southern California. However, whatever you gain in uh 
quicker offload, you tend to lose in that Kansas City yard if you're heading for, say, New York or something or heading on to, on to Can- uh, Canadian Pacific. Once this deal is done, that's a straight line track into Chicago and beyond. That's a real benefit for shippers. That is, that, that's the, the analogy for us consumers is it's the difference between a nonstop flight and a one-stop flight where you might not have to get off your plane, but you still have to stop. You know, I mean, that, that matters. And, um, you know, th- there's an environmental thing here too. Yes. Maybe more oil. They, you know, there's a lot there, but uh, rail is more efficient. And right now, you have a lot of the congestions on the so-called Chicago to D- Dallas auto corridor is trucks that are forced to buy, but cargo that is forced to go by trucking because the trains are just so overwhelmed. Uh, you can one train line can keep 300 trucks off the road. So if you can turn this into a viable competitor on that spine of the U.S. route where you don't have to switch trains, you don't have to switch engines, you can just go through. There is a real envi- a measurable environmental benefit there. That's not just uh, you know PR from the press release. Yeah, absolutely. So I think you run through the press release, they give some justifications that make sense. I kind of put them into to bullet points. So number one, as we talked about, combining these two networks together will help expand the market and make, make things easier for their customers. Obviously adds new competition to the market as you have more kind of um, service available and more seamless linking. You can make the case for environmental efficiency benefits there. I mean, the the the, uh, the efficiency of trains versus versus autos is well documented. Now you could say that pipelines are even more efficient, but you know we won't get into that into uh, into that debate right now. Now there are um, we're kind of there was one area where where I see them arguing it as a benefit, and I'm not sure if that makes sense to me. One of the is they say that they're going to create jobs across the combined network. From my perspective, if you're taking out, you know, the people who are working at the interchange and doing what they need to uh, to squeeze efficiency, when I think efficiency, that tends to align with reducing headcount. Do you think that that is that is more a PR thing or do you see a case that that, you know, they can deliver that? I'm always skeptical about promises that there won't be job losses in mergers regardless. You know, I mean, that's kind of just a nature to beast. Uh, I do think that there is a good case to be made here. They talk about about $800 million in revenue synergies, like added business that they think they can bring in just as being one network instead of two. I, I think for the reasons we've talked about, I think there's something to that. And hopefully, maybe, hopefully that offsets whatever job losses in the back office. You know, that, that switching yard will now become, a, it's still going to be a valuable rail yard. So, you know, it's not just going to disappear. Um, you know, I mean, I, 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 I don't think if you're a regulator, you approve this on the promise of huge, robust job creation. But I, I think there's a reason. I mean, both of these companies are well run. There's not a lot of quote unquote fat to trim. I, I'm hopeful that it won't be a huge job loss event, but no, I, I I would be skeptical about any claims for huge employment gains. Right. And if you wanted to make the counter argument, what you would say is this lower cost of shipping is going to allow more businesses to thrive because their costs go down. And, and as a result, maybe you lose some employment on the railroad side, but on, but on some of these areas of the railroad services, you know, maybe there's more breathing space for businesses to exist. So, so you know, the, these, aren't, these aren't all one-for-ones, kind of how these change the market can, can uh, create opportunities while, while kind of closing off opportunities in other places. One last thing on this railroad deal um, that, I, that I thought was interesting, got maybe two things. Number one, when you look at this combined company, is this something you find kind of uh, compelling to invest in today? And then second off, what do you think of as like the read through to the broader railway industry? Kansas City Southern just got taken out at at a 
20% plus premium to where it was previously trading. Does that suggest that, that maybe there's some opportunity uh, in other railroad uh, companies? So generally, I like I like both of these companies as individual investments. Uh, and I think there's a, I, I'm hopeful they can make a real dynamite company out of it. So if I held either of these stocks, I certainly wouldn't sell on this. Uh, you know, with mergers, this is a complex merger. It's going to take a long time. You know, B, I'm, I'm always a little nervous buying in right on a deal. I'd rather let the integration play out, especially in this case when you're talking over a year. Um, I would probably prefer maybe the Canadian National as the rival there or even a Union Pacific. I don't like the East Coast railways as much. Uh, as far as valuations, you know, we've come a long way and we are in a real good market for freight. Uh, if you look at these companies, um, you know, the deal is priced maybe, I think, 28, around 28 times forward earnings. Um, most of the rest of the industry is trading between 21 and 24. I think a lot of this premium is just because of the risk, and you have to talk companies in this industry into signing on the dotted line. Uh, Canadian Pacific has made a run of two or three other railroads in the last 10 years that they didn't get. So I think the premium is more just the risk premium of taking on this adventure than it is a revaluation. But um, I think generally, I, I think rail is an attractive long-term investment, and uh, there are good opportunities. Absolutely. I think I think all these these class one railroads we talked about there's seven of them are systemically important um, to, to trade and, and all those sorts of things and so and so I think owning owning some of those arteries you could do a lot worse um, than owning some of these systemically important companies on the topic of systemically important transportation infrastructure uh, that brings us to our second story uh, for today global shipping has really been thrown for a loop uh, this week as on Tuesday the container ship ever given ran aground in the Suez Canal after being hit by severe winds blocking the entirety of the Suez Canal today Lou what does this mean for just the broader economy markets of the world so we are getting a firsthand painful, maybe, education on how important the Suez Canal is and how many just potential choke points there are. Uh, yeah, the Ever Given is a huge ship, uh, the, one of the biggest ships in the world. Um, we'll find out all of it, but uh, this Suez Canal, which is now blocked, and uh, there's great pictures. If you, if you can see like the satellite data, there are hundreds of ships on either side just trying to get by. Uh, Suez Canal accounts for something like 12% of global trade, 9% of total seaborne traded petroleum. Uh, you know, there is there is so much that goes into this, and um, it, 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 it's now appearing it could be weeks. I mean, I, I saw something before we came on that uh, there's some of the biggest shipping companies are considering rerouting through the Cape of Good Hope, uh, South Africa. Uh, that's adding 10, 15 days significant fuel expense if you can wait a few days and see this disappear, you're not going to do that. Uh, that is the industry signaling that they're at least getting worried that this is going to be weeks, not days. And uh, yeah, you are going to see a trickle down. Energy is the obvious, but uh, in all sorts of um, I, you know global trade, uh, retail, this is a big deal, especially for trade between Europe and um, and Asia, because that's uh, that's the main pathway between the two. Right. So, so our, our folks that are that are watching live with us on full live, I'm showing up, a, a flashing up a picture from VesselFinder.com. For the podcast listeners, I'll drop a link, um, a link in the uh, in the podcast description. But if you go to that, uh, go to that website. Yeah, you can really see how uh, their traffic is just absolutely backed up um, in, in the Suez 
canal as a result um, of this blockage. Just to throw some some numbers out, and you can also look at you know coincidentally if you're just curious at some other areas around the world. So you know, in addition to the Suez Canal, other really important systemically important places like the Strait of Hormuz coming out of um, coming out of uh, the Middle East um, and, and those areas, as well as I talked back in September had Daniel Jurgen talking about uh, the Strait of Malacca, which goes right past Singapore, is a very systemically important uh, um, trading channel. And then obviously many folks are, are are familiar with the Panama Canal. All of these all of these areas massively. Um, important for global trade. Just to go into uh, some numbers on on the Suez Canal, 12% um, of global trade travels through the Suez Canal, about 9% of total seaboard, total seaborne traded petroleum, including crude oil and refined products, which makes sense, right? It's this is the this is the sea route that can take oil from the from the Middle East to Europe, one of the biggest demand centers um, in the world. As far as the impact right now on um, on trade. Um, uh, according to estimates from, from Lloyd's List, which has been quoted by, uh, by Bloomberg, looking at $9.6 billion uh, um, per day of trade going through, um, going through the Suez Canal, 185 ships um, currently waiting to transit the waterway. And, and as, you mentioned, um, as you mentioned, Lou, uh, they've been working to try to excavate, uh, refloat the ship. I've learned this new term. I didn't realize this is the term you use when the ship runs aground. You need to refloat it. Um, but anyway, they've been trying to refloat the ship uh, uh, f- for the past couple of days. And when you look at uh, um, quotes from some of the people working on the project, it sounds like it could extend for weeks, which, you know, there's only so many ships there out on the, uh, out on the ocean and having to reroute around Africa. You can see how, how global supply chains already stretched by COVID are going to be stretched even more. Yeah, and COVID, that's a great point. We should kind of back up and talk about kind of what was going on leading into this. Uh, with the pandemic, a lot of trade froze or slowed down. A lot of these ships were returned to home port, sent places. So as things began to open up, you had an imbalance of supply and demand where it was needed, which uh, was kind of has become worse because uh, due to COVID and restrictions, like uh, LA just isn't unloading as many ships as they would normally. There's a lot more restrictions there. Uh, container rates were already up on some markets, like the uh, Trans-Pacific markets, 3x over a year ago. Uh, you have uh, demand from China being so impressive that uh, shippers were just not even waiting to reload. They would just to send the ships empty back to China because they could get so much money. That has screwed up agricultural exports. There is a real just supply-demand imbalance right now going on even without this. This is going to just make things even more crazy. That's going to ripple down to a lot of industries that re- that rely on this. So we're going to see their costs go crazy with shipping over the next year or so, or in the next few months. And uh, look, these are big ships that are hard to move. These are hard problems to solve quickly. Once the system is sort of being jerked or, or thrown off kilter, any one of these things could have a, a ripple effect for a couple of months. You throw all of these together, and this could honestly weigh on, on supply chains for a lot longer than we realize, through the year, maybe even a little longer. Right. This is one of the you know, half dozen most important choke points in the world. And to have that blocked off, um, really, really significant. One of the other things we talked about, Lou, is if you look at trends over the past several years or the past several decades, these container ships have become larger and larger over time. Global trade continues to grow and we're, we need to get these goods around the world. These, these ships are made specifically 
to fit in the uh, in these canals. So there's the Panamax that goes through the Panama Canal. There's the Suez Max that goes through the Suez. We talked about railroads earlier. I think you can think about these canals as kind of like the railroad gauge for ships, right? This is the size you have to be able to make it um, to fit through through these channels. But there has been some talk about as these ships get bigger, should we be expecting more of this in the future? Like, what are the, what are the potential implications uh, um, for this going forward? Yeah, so I think this is fascinating, and it's it, obviously this is speculative because who knows. But uh, as you say, so the Ever Given c- can hold about twenty thousand containers. Uh, just for some comparison, the largest ships back in two thousand seven, you know, just thirteen years ago, held about eight thousand containers. So it's twice as big. There are, according to Drury, there are forty-seven more of these Ever Given size or larger twenty-five thousand container ships on order right now. This was supposed to be the future of shipping because obviously the more you can shovel in there, the more efficient you can be. These ships, though, already, they can't go through the Panama Canal. Uh, most of them can't unload on the in the U.S. ports. It's going to take billions of investment to do that. These ships are primarily going between Asia and uh, Europe, specifically Asia and Rotterdam, because there's not many places you can unload it even there. Uh, I think that there is going to be some talk out of, Suez, out of the Suez people now. This is basically stretching them out. They're the only one in the world can handle it. And obviously we're seeing they can't handle it well. It didn't take much. It took a gust of wind and a sandstorm for this to happen. Uh, There is, I think, a possibility that they say, you know, we don't want these ships either. And then that would really change the economics of where shipping was supposed to be going as far as bigger boats, more cargo to smaller boats. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say exactly what happens here. I may be overreacting acting and Suez may gladly take the fees or figure out a way to do these better and just widen. But you do wonder if kind of this trend towards the ever bigger ship, we are learning the hard way, the downside to that. And I, I am curious if the industry doesn't reassess. And if they do, that is going to change their cost structure, which is going to change the cost structure for everyone who relies on them. So there are real global economic impact if, if this changes things. Yeah, I think it just, it just goes to show we're in this increasingly techified world, but still some very low tech things are really are underlying um, this this entire global economy uh, that we're benefiting from uh, from today, right? Uh, we you know if there was infrastructure week constantly for the past few years, I think we're going to keep on with infrastructure week. It's very very important, and we are reaching the point uh, that we are stretching um, the, the limits of a lot of our infrastructure, whether that's you know, the Suez Canal this week or, or a few months ago, we were talking about the energy grid in Texas. Um, there is certainly a lot of investment that, that is that is needed to be made in, in our infrastructure. And we're seeing, you know, some of it uh, be stretched about as far as it wants to go. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the kind of the big picture takeaway that binds these two stories together is that infrastructure is a scarce resource and it deserves to be valued that way when we are considering these companies, these investments. I mean, there is something of value in the railroads that they just are railroads and they have that railroad track. There is value in these shipping lanes. And, you know, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't make these, you know, 30 times sales tech investments necessarily, but I think it is underappreciated as people analyze these companies. It's, the rail lines, the infrastructure is sort of taken for granted. Uh, we are getting some tough education on we shouldn't take these things for granted, that it is a scarce resource with value. Absolutely. So we'll continue uh, following these stories as they develop, the Suez story as it continues to play out. And 
even further in the investment world, to the extent we, we can find opportunities of companies that are going to benefit from the dollars that need to be invested in, in what we need to do to maintain this infrastructure or bring it up to, uh, to the standards we need. Uh, that'll be something we'll be talking about on, on this show as well. Lou, thank you as always for joining me on the podcast and can't wait to have you on next time. Always a pleasure to be here. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For Lou Whiteman, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.